This is John Holtzman with a special podcast celebrating the glorious fourth, or second in this case, more of which later. Uh, the two days of the year that I miss the United States most and am genuinely homesick are my two favorite holidays, which are uniquely American, the 4th of July and Thanksgiving. They're my two favorite holidays, and I've spent most of them away, and it's the two days I am incredibly homesick for my country. And in the tradition of that, that my father would always, while we were getting out the macaroni salad and the potato salad and the baked beans and the hot dogs and the barbecue and the cherry cheesecake for dessert that my grandmother would make and we'd sit out in her backyard in Ohio. And my father would raise his glass and say, here's to Mr. Adams, Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Franklin. And this is my little remembrance of our family's tradition in doing this. Um, because as I've said many times before, I'm a good Bruce Springsteen American. Like him, I can often say, isn't this a terrible place, except I'm sitting here with a girl on the top of a car and the wind blowing in my hair, and there's nowhere I'd rather be. In the Springsteen-Steinbeck tradition, I give you what is a yearly tradition, uh, for those of you who follow the community, my take on one of the founders, and in this case, this is straight out of my book, To Dare More Boldly, on John Adams. Today, when you enter Independence Hall Assembly Room in Philadelphia, you feel like an intruder. It is masterfully displayed as if the Continental Delegates are really there, only having taken a break in their momentous deliberations and about to re-enter the room. Eerily, I keep looking around, expecting Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson, deep in conversation together, to come in at any moment. The walls are painted the same dark gray, while at the front of the room still sits the ornate chair of John Hancock, president of the Second Continental Congress. In contrast, the colonies' delegations all uniformly have the same straight-backed, austere chairs clustered around a medium-sized table covered by a green cloth. Books and quill pens are strewn willy-nilly on the tables, as if the delegates remain at heart at work, which in a very real ideological sense, they do. Having spent a good deal of my life visiting historical sites, I was still unprepared to find myself so moved by the perfection of the presentation of the room where it all began. I found myself thinking like the geopolitical risk analyst that I am. The miracle of it all was that they did this not knowing they would succeed, fighting the greatest army, the greatest navy, and perhaps the greatest empire the world had ever seen. I marveled at their courage for signing the Declaration of Independence, as they were to do in July 1776 which was as good as signing their death warrants, were the Continental cause to falter. But I also found incredible one man's foresight. For almost alone, John Adams managed to clearly see, beyond the immediate peril of what his contemporaries were attempting, the game-changing nature of the American revolutionary experiment. The ability to know when game-changing events are actually happening in real time, as both Adams and later Winston Churchill managed to do, is to see history moving. It is an invaluable element in mastering geopolitical risk. To do so, the analyst must adopt an almost Olympian view, seeing beyond the immediate to make sense of what is going on now by placing it in the broader tapestry of world history itself. There is an almost mystical quality to the ability to spot game-changing moments, for in a very real sense, to do so is to touch the face of God. The rewards for this rare but necessary ability are legion, for it allows the analyst or policymaker to make real sense of the present, assessing the true context of what is going on now and what is likely to happen in the future. 
It is jarring to compare the lackluster abilities of today's Western statesmen, so far behind the curve in seeing the game-changing rise of Asia, for example, to the phenomenal analytical abilities of true statesmen of vision, such as the querulous, challenging, maddening, but overwhelmingly talented lawyer from Braintree. For of the two great founders of the American Republic, only one saw the happenings of early July 1776 as the game-changing, groundbreaking, epoch-shaking events they were. Adams, the eloquent floor leader of the fight for independence, talked of people setting off fireworks and celebrations centuries hence, owing to what was going on. Adams wrote to his beloved wife and confidant Abigail on July 3rd, the day after the Congress voted for independence, which is why I'm writing today the 2nd, but the day before the declaration itself was ratified, the 4th, saying, You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it cost us to maintain this declaration and to support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom I can see rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in the day's transaction. While Adams was clear-eyed about the many struggles ahead that needed to be overcome to attain the dream of the American Revolution, he was also aware of the ground-shaking nature of the prize. In the same letter Adams wrote to Abigail, The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized by pomp and parade with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward, forevermore. Looking back over the centuries, it is hard to think of a better piece of political risk analysis. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, only mentioned in his diary that he had bought a thermometer from John Sparhawk for £3.15 on the glorious 4th, and his wife some gloves. Nowhere is there the slightest mention of the enormous gravity of what was taking place. It is not that Jefferson was not fully aware that he was putting his life on the line. To sign the declaration was to cross the Rubicon, engaging in what could only look like treason to the British crown. But Jefferson, unlike the prescient Adams, did not grasp what the moment in early July truly meant. Losing the war to the most formidable army the world had yet seen seemed a likely conclusion. Indeed, as the political struggle for independence reached its climax in early July 1776, a combined British army and naval task force was about to inflict the worst defeat on the Continental Army of the entire Revolutionary War at the Battle of Long Island. It was here that Washington himself escaped personal capture by only a whisker. Jefferson was well aware of the peril of what he and his colleagues were doing. However, there is no written record of him explaining the huge potential upside of what was transpiring, or revealing his awareness that this was truly a game-changing moment for all of human history. But Jefferson is far from alone. Likewise, modern geopolitical risk analysts far too often cleave to the intellectual shore in a desperate search for analytical safety when events have already shaped, shaken up the comfortable world they have grown used to describing. However, Adams could see further. While Adams instinctively understood the game-changing import of what was taking place, he did fail miserably in picking the date that would be sent by future generations for illuminations. But this is hardly surprising, as the struggle to enact American independence was far more of a process than a specific moment. 
By the dawn of July 1776, Britain and America had already been at war for more than a year. As the battles of Lexington and Concord had opened the conflict in April 1775. The actual state of hostilities, more than any other action, was the midwife to independence, as London haughtily dismissed petition after petition from a Continental Congress still desperately hoping for a rapprochement, political opinion in America inevitably hardened. For if the British were acting as if irreparable hostilities had broken out between the mother country and the colonies, why should not the Continental Congress follow in such logic? Jefferson's view was that the Continental Congress only needed to declare a fact that already existed. There were other factors pushing the cause of independence forward that July. Public support had been steadily climbing after the publication of Thomas Paine's explosive pamphlet, Common Sense, in January 1776. In it, Paine openly advocates for the necessity of independence and the desirability of forming an American republic, topics heretofore only whispered about. Common sense proved enormously popular and discernibly moved continental public opinion toward the political outcome that took place in July 1776. But while support grew, something like 20% of the colonists, particularly in the middle colonies of New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, retained an increasingly anguished loyalty to king and country. Advocates of independence, such as Adams and Jefferson, knew that to lose any of the colonies along the path to independence would be to doom their very fragile cause to defeat, as waging civil war, in addition to fighting the British crown, was a struggle beyond them. In many ways, independence had to proceed at the pace of the most hesitant of the colonies if the project was to prosper. Here we must spend a minute looking at the incredible duo of Adams and Jefferson, the Lennon and McCartney of the Revolution. Just as was true for those two brilliant feuding singers, Adams and Jefferson were truly frenemies, two parts creative and political soulmates to one part and sometimes beneath the surface, ferociously competitive, talented, and proud men with very different views of what America should become following the war. It is hard to imagine two people with more different characters. Adams was eloquent, brilliant, fantastically well-educated, endlessly verbal, intense, vain, but possessed of the saving grace of a clear view of his own glaring foibles. Sent by Massachusetts to the first two Continental Congresses, Adams served there with singular distinction between 1774 and 1777. From the autumn of 1775 onwards, no single man in Congress worked more passionately to bring about independence. In June 1775, with the political end in mind of promoting greater union amongst the colonies, Adams nominated the Virginian George Washington to be commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, meaning a Southern general would be commanding predominantly New England troops. Jefferson himself, years removed from the scene, described Adams as the pillar of the Declaration's support on the floor of Congress, its ablest advocate and defender against the multifarious assaults it encountered. Legendarily tireless, Adams sat on an astonishing 90 committees in Congress during the Revolution, chairing 25. No other delegate came near to his work ethic. Crucially, from 1777, Adams served as the head of the Board of War and Ordnance, the committee that in essence oversaw the Continental Army's administration and ran the war effort. Nicknamed the One-Man War Department, Adams regularly worked 18-hour days, mastering on the fly the detail involved in raising, equipping, and fielding an army from scratch. This was Adams at his zenith, acknowledged by all as the most important man in the Congress. Jefferson, by contrast, was a man of the pen, 
self-contained, quiet, but no less intense than Adams in his own peculiar way, extreme, bookish, and apt to settle scores behind the scenes. Jefferson served as a delegate from Virginia to the Continental Congress starting in 1775 at the time of the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. There is little doubt that the early American Republic was blessed by the fact that both men were certified geniuses, but that made it more than a little difficult for them to work together. Over time, the obvious contradictions in this enforced alliance were to drive them politically and personally apart. However, in July 1776, these two vital men work amicably and in tandem over the single most important thing they would ever do in both their lives. Large, prosperous, and centrally located Pennsylvania became the key battleground over the independence question. As late as May 1st, 1776, a special statewide election from the, for the Pennsylvania Assembly called over the question of independence and left opponents of such a course in political control, with John Dickinson as their leader. Dickinson was by far Adams and Jefferson's most effective political foe. Like Adams, Dickinson served in the first two Continental Congresses from 1774 to 76. Delaware's wealthiest farmer, Dickinson had significant political interests both there and in neighboring Pennsylvania. Later in the war, he served as chief executive of both states at the same time. As verbally eloquent as Adams and as facile with a pen as Jefferson, Dickinson was a supporter of the necessity of taking up arms against Britain following on from Lexington, but lived in hope that a reconciliation was still possible as he simply didn't believe a supremely understandable view that the ragged Continental Army could ever defeat the mighty British Empire. Dickinson wrote the Olive Tree Petitions, which amounted to the Second Continental Congress's last attempt at formal reconciliation with Britain. Unbeknownst to Dickinson and his allies, George III in London didn't even bother to read them. But even without assured victory, the proponents of independence felt the die was cast. On June 6, 1776, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, by far the most populous and most important of the colonies, rose to his feet in the Second Continental Congress in, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, proposing American independence. Adams immediately seconded a motion that he had helped the Virginian to draft beforehand. Dickinson and his allies immediately countered, saying that while they admitted that reconciliation with Britain was unlikely, a call for independence was premature, and that seeking aid from a foreign power such as France should be the immediate priority. Adams, in contrast, argued that the only way to obtain such aid was to provide the world to prove to the world that America was decisively politically separate from Britain, as foreign countries were not going to waste their time if all this amounted to was an internal British matter. With the Congress deadlocked on June 10, 1776, it voted to postpone further discussion of Lee's resolution for three weeks, as delegates from Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, and New York still had not received instructions from their state legislatures on how to vote over the central issue. During this lull, it was decided that Congress would prepare a declaration explaining before the world the reasons for American independence in the event that Lee's resolution was to pass. On June 11th, the task of drafting the declaration was given to the Committee of Five, comprising Adams, Jefferson, and their close ally, the diplomatist Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, along with Roger Sherman of Connecticut and Robert Livingston of New York. Tragically for posterity, no official notes were taken of the proceedings, so we do not know exactly how the committee set about working. It appears the committee discussed as a group the general outline the document should take. We are aware that initially the committee, including Jefferson, thought that Adams, as the acknowledged leader of the campaign for independence, 
should be the primary author of the draft. Here Adams showed his greatness. He demurred, persuading the others that the relatively unknown Jefferson should be the primary writer. His arguments for this were many and telling. First, Jefferson was a Virginian, and unity would be better served if a representative of the most important colony was the principal drafter of such an important document. Second, Adams, always a deeply polarizing figure, as many great orators are, was unpopular with many members of Congress, whereas the quieter Jefferson was liked by almost everyone. Third, Adams reasoned, Jefferson wrote ten times better than he did. While the last point may well have been a bit of Adams's famous false modesty, the rest of his reasoning hit home. Very reluctantly, Jefferson agreed to draft the Declaration. It is likely that Jefferson wrote the draft quickly, consulting the other members of the committee, particularly Adams, who had promised to work with Jefferson personally over the language and thrust of the text, then making a second draft incorporating their suggested alterations. The committee presented the Declaration to the Congress as a whole on June 28, 1776. Then, to Jefferson's barely suppressed horror, the full Congress took a hacksaw to the document, amending it over the next two days, shortening the text by one quarter. Crucially, Congress decided to remove Jefferson's sketchy charge that Britain had forced slavery on the colonies in an effort to placate influential supporters in London who backed the American cause. For the rest of his life, Jefferson felt that Congress had mangled his soaring draft. Meanwhile, political events favored Adams and Jefferson. In Pennsylvania, controversies over what to instruct its delegates in Congress to do regarding independence led to the dissolution of the pro-Dickinson Colonial Assembly, and on June 18th, the Pennsylvania state governor switched course, authorizing its delegation to declare in favor of independence. The state government had changed sides. With the critical vote looming over the horizon, only New York was unable to provide its delegates with revised instructions. Its provincial Congress had been forced to flee as British forces ominously approached New York City. Playing for time on July 1st, Dickinson tried to delay the decision, again arguing that Congress shouldn't declare independence without first securing a major foreign alliance and finalizing the Articles of Confederation, which served as America's first constitution. Adams replied, and lamentably, no copy of his pivotal speech exists, noting that Dickinson had it back to front. The colonial cause could only succeed if they declared independence and then found a foreign backer. There would be no such help without a declaration. But the long-awaited vote did not result in a resounding triumph for the forces of separation. Each colony had only one vote, and the size of the delegations of each colony varied from two to seven. The delegates within a colony would argue amongst themselves as to what to do, with a majority determining the colony's vote. The July 1st vote found nine colonies in favor of independence, two against, and two abstaining. Dickinson's Pennsylvania and South Carolina voted against Lee's measure, with Delaware's two-person delegation split down the middle, and New York unable to proceed owing to the lack of instructions. So, on July 1st, Congress passed Lee's resolution as a committee of the whole, while the coming July 2nd deliberation was over the formal vote of independence. It is easy to see why fixing a culminating date for this whole process was in retrospect beyond the founders, but one thing was for sure. They were nearer the dream of independence than they had ever been. This was the crucial political moment, for although the measure had been passed by the whole Congress out of committee, to do so by such an uninspiring margin could well spell doom for the Continental cause. Three major changes occurred with the dawning of July 2nd. South Carolina dramatically reversed position. Edward Rutledge, the state's young leading light, remained against the motion, but 
horrified at sundering his state's ties to the rest of the colonies, changed his vote. In Pennsylvania, for similar reasons, Dickinson and his ally Robert Morris abstained, allowing a 3-2 vote in favor of independence to be secured within the delegation. With the tie in Delaware broken by the just-in-time arrival of a third pro-independence delegate, Caesar Rodney, the political miracle had come to pass. Twelve colonies in favor, none against, with New York abstaining. On July 4th, the last day in this complex, riveting political process, Congress finally approved Jefferson's declaration and sent it to the printer. As it was decided that no one should be allowed to sit in Congress without agreeing to sign the declaration, John Dickinson illustrated his political commitment to the cause. Convinced the war would be lost, and despite his pacifist Quaker beliefs, Dickinson voluntarily left and instead enlisted in the Pennsylvania militia with the rank of Brigadier General. He would continue to serve his country faithfully for the rest of his life. Given this complex story, it is easy to see why Adams, in writing to Abigail, thought that July 2nd was the culminating moment of the drama. The independents voted for on that day had been the true game changer, a decisive break with all that had politically come before, heralding a very different trajectory for both America and the entire world ahead. But history would have it otherwise. The document justifying the act of independence would come to overshadow the very act itself. Sometimes, as in the case of the Declaration of Independence, it takes far longer for game-changing events to play out, particularly if they are based on ideas rather than events. For while the Declaration started as a specific charge sheet against Britain justifying American freedom, as the years wore on, it became something very different, a universal ideological rallying cry for a newly formed political system based on the notion that the only legitimate government was government based on the consent of the governed. By Jefferson's own admission, the Declaration contained new, no new ideas itself, but like many seminal writings, it beautifully and soaringly synthesized the general beliefs held by the leading supporters of the American Revolution. Jefferson drew on a series of immediate sources, especially his own proposed draft of the Virginia Constitution and fellow Virginian George Mason's draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. The Declaration laid out two specific themes at the time the Committee of Five drafted it, with Jefferson in the lead. First, it justified independence by a lengthy list of specific grievances it placed at the feet of George III. Curiously, and not very accurately, he was seen by the colonists as the villain of the piece, rather than the British Prime Minister in Parliament, who increasingly wielded the true power. Secondly, it asserted that the colonists had natural and legal rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or property, that had been violated by Britain, and that it included the right of revolution in response to this violation. In essence, the colonists were saying that, the crown view, that what the Crown viewed as an illegal rebellion was actually a legal revolution. The reaction to the eloquent boldness and universality of the Declaration from America's enemies was immediate. British Tories denounced the signers of the Declaration, curiously much as today's presentist historians do, for not applying their universalist principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to Africans miserably shackled in southern fields. While this is an entirely valid criticism then and now, it assumes that the, moment of man, that the movement of man toward meeting the wildly idealistic political nirvana of the Declaration could be accomplished all at once, which is certainly a naive point of view for anyone who has ever bothered to study history. In setting the bar so politically and morally high, the founders had rightly opened themselves up to the entirely justifiable criticism of their falling short of the Declaration's lofty heights. 
However, by writing, agreeing on, and signing it, they had changed the very political reference points for the world from that time forward, making such a criticism valid in the first place. It is the second broader theme, rather than the laundry list of the king's crimes, which makes up the majority of the Declaration, that has come to have real intellectual staying power. The Declaration's heady notions of self-evident truths of equality and inalienable rights, articulated in the second paragraph, have proven to be universally applicable. The phrase, all men are created equal, may indeed be the most potent and consequential words in American history, for it means that humans have innate worth, rights, and value, that not even the most powerful government in the world is legally or morally allowed to eradicate. All the snide present-day commentators who drone on about how conservative the American Revolution was, merely a group of slave-owning oligarchs trying to secure political power commensurate with their economic wealth, entirely miss this basic point. Fortunately for the country, neither Abraham Lincoln nor Martin Luther King Jr. did. But it was Adams, not Jefferson, who at the time of the Declaration's drafting seemed to sense that something even larger than American independence was at work here, that this was a game-changing moment for humanity itself. As the Revolutionary War wore on, the Declaration was largely forgotten, lost in the drama surrounding the ultimate miraculous victory of Washington's forces at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. But with the Federalist-Jeffersonian split in the 1790s, a division that ended the Adams-Jefferson friendship for 20 years, interest in it revived. The Declaration was politically pitched by Jeffersonian, Jefferson's allies as a way to enshrine his place in the revolutionary pantheon, alongside the undisputed credentials of Washington, Adams, and Hamilton, his Federalist enemies. Over time, the act of winning independence to Adams' barely concealed annoyance came to be synonymous with the document itself. Marginalized groups, first in America and then around the world, turned to the beguiling promise and meaning of the preamble of the Declaration and not the more legalistic Constitution for moral and political support. Over the next century, workers, abolitionists, farmers, and women would all base their calls for greater rights on the argument that what they wanted was merely the fulfillment of what the founders had promised to them long before. Perhaps no figure was as important in bringing about the ideological transformation of the document as Abraham Lincoln. He strongly believed all his life that Jefferson's language in the Declaration was deliberately universal in tone, setting the highest moral and political standard for the American Republic to aspire to. As Pauline Mayer makes clear, Lincoln believed that the Declaration became a living document with a set of goals to be realized over time. Firmly convinced as to its universal meaning and import, Lincoln said, I had thought the Declaration contemplated the progressive improvement in the condition of all men everywhere. This intellectual jujitsu has made the Declaration the ultimate work in progress, the yardstick that any American person or group cleaves to when asserting their own universal rights. A major part of the reason for Martin Luther King Jr.'s great success in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was his eloquent ability to shame white moderates in America with their own founding documents stirring words, making it clear that African-Americans merely wanted the very rights Thomas Jefferson had made clear were inalienably theirs. From the tumult of the French Revolution of the 1790s onwards, the Declaration of Independence has become a global yardstick used by insurgents everywhere, justifying their acts of rebellion as being legal and necessary, owing to the deprivation of the universal human rights Jefferson so ringingly set forth over 200 years ago. The Declaration amounts to a truly game-changing ideological and political moment for humanity.
Far-seeing John Adams was right to think that generations hence, his countrymen would light illuminations because of what happened in that hot Philadelphia of July 1776. It is delightful to report that Adams's sagacity had its limits. The always difficult Adams-Jefferson friendship hit the skids in the 1790s as their very different political opinions drove them into rival Federalist Jeffersonian camps. But for Adams, the final straw was his sense of personal betrayal when as America's second president, he found that his vice president, Jefferson, had been disloyal and sponsored harsh personal attacks against him. After Jefferson defeated his old friend for the presidency in 1800, the two did not speak again for more than a decade. But Adams' fundamental magnanimity eventually triumphed. In 1812, prompted by their mutual friend and fellow signer of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, Adams wrote Jefferson a short New Year's greeting to which the Virginian warmly responded. Over the next 14 years, between 1812 and 1826, the two men began an extraordinary regular correspondence, exchanging 158 letters in which they discussed their political differences, debating the meaning of the revolution to which they had devoted their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Their mutual ends on the 50th anniversary of the ratifying of the document they had done so much to remake the world is a storyline that simply could not have been made up. Proof to pious Americans of the time that God really did favor America. As he lay dying on July 4, 1826, Adams clearly smiled and said, Thomas Jefferson survives. Given the communications of the time, it was impossible for Adams to know that his great friend and rival had expired earlier that same hallowed day. But if in the end Adams was only human, his analytical gift in recognizing the game-changing nature of what the stirring events of July 1776 were actually about stands out as an example of what great political risk analysis can lead to. So a happy second to you all, a happy fourth, and as I'm going to be off the, off the grid for the next week traveling, enjoy this moment. Those of you who are Americans, have a piece of cherry pie for me. Have a hot dog for me and know that I'm with you as we toast the great trio of Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin. And to our foreign community, know that this is a moment for everyone, that John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and the American Revolution are indeed for the world. And on that happy note, I wish you a glorious fourth.